The relationship between the Roman Catholic Church and the Jewish people has not been a particularly happy one or good one. From the very beginning, the early church propounded, proposed a number of principles, a number of ideas that would have dramatic impact on Catholic-Jewish relations. These are what was called by a French Jewish physician who had lost his family in the Holocaust. He referred to these basic teachings of the Roman Catholic Church as the teachings of contempt. Those teachings, and I will move through them very, very quickly. The first one said something like this, that Judaism at the time of the appearance of Jesus or the emergence of Jesus on the historical scene, Judaism was spiritually bankrupt. The Jews worshiped the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. The story in the New Testament that made that clear was that famous story of Jesus chasing the money changes out of the temple. The point of the story is, look at the Jews, they're turning a buck right near the Holy of Holies. In reality, of course, as I think I've said to some of you on another occasion, there had to be money changes in the vicinity of the temple because Jews from all over the diaspora were coming to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices at the temple, and they had to change the currency of the countries from which they had come into the currency of Judea. That's why there were Jewish money changes in the vicinity of the temple. The most important of those basic teachings of contempt is the one that resonates not only down to the present day, but probably till the end of time. Homicide is murder. It is a terrible thing. Parricide, the killing of a parent, is worse. Regicide, the killing of a king, is worse than that. The Jews are guilty of the greatest crime, according to the Roman Catholic Church, of, that has ever taken place upon this planet. They are guilty of the crime of deicide. They killed God's only son. Now, what is important here is, of course, and there, is a, there are further teachings here, but we don't have to get into that. But what is most significant here, and this is not a Burke's Law of History, but it will serve well, and that is this. What is important in history is not reality. What is important in history is the perception of reality. It's what people believe took place that is important. And while today many scholars, Christian as well as Jewish scholars, will make the point that the stories of the Gospels about the Jews being responsible for the killing of Jews, they are not true. That is, there's something wrong with those stories. But what scholars say in 2011 is important for the future. What is important for us is that for almost 2,000 years, large numbers of Catholics, and indeed large numbers of Christians, will believe that the Jews were responsible for this terrible crime. What this is going to mean as the Roman Empire becomes Christianized is that the Jewish position in the Roman Empire is going to deteriorate. No massive violence perpetrated against the Jews, but restriction after restriction that will hem the Jews in. Jewish life becomes difficult, but it does not become impossible. It becomes impossible at the end of the 11th century when Pope Urban II comes to the French town of Clermont and declares that it is incumbent upon all Christians in Europe to come to the defense, 
of the Holy Land that is under the Muslim infidels. This is the beginning of the Crusades. The Crusades will stir up considerable religious fervor and hysteria with large numbers of itinerant priests making the rounds of Western and Central European towns, cities, and villages and telling the people there who do not have the means to go on the Crusades that they ought not to worry about that, that they can still, still achieve salvation and freedom from sin by striking at the people who live amongst them who were responsible for the killing of the Son of God. In short, the Crusades will see massive hysteria, frenzy, and the murder of large numbers of Jews in Western Europe, particularly along the Rhine, particularly in France, and in the German lands. But the Pope and the papacy, in fairness to them, will never buy in to the murder of Jews. The official church's position had been laid down by St. Augustine in the sixth century of the Common Era, when St. Augustine argued very simply, the Jews are indeed a despicable people. They murdered Jesus, but they are human beings and they should not be murdered. And most important of all, Augustine argued in an interesting point, you want the Jews around because you want the holy books of the Jews around. Now you may ask the question of yourselves, why do they want the holy books of the Jews around? And the answer is, down to the present day, Catholics, as well as many Protestants, particularly Protestant fundamentalists, believe that what they call the Old Testament has within it certain signs of the coming of Jesus. That is, the prophet Isaiah, for example, is said by Christians to predict the coming of Jesus. Now that's the result, incidentally, more history than you ever wanted to know, and more biblical interpretation than you ever wanted to know. That's a consequence of what is probably a mistranslation. In one of Isaiah's prophecies, there is a statement that a, an Alma will give birth to a child, and that child will lead the Jewish people. The traditional interpretation, Hebrew interpretation, of the word Alma is a young woman or a girl. When that is translated into Greek, and then from the Greek into the English, the Alma becomes not a young woman or a girl, but a virgin. So the point here in all of this is, again, Augustine says, you want the books of the Jews around. For example, there's another example here. In our tradition, and certainly in the Tanakh, notice how I am being so politically and religiously correct here, and I am not a man known for political correctness. But what is right is right. That is, we Jews, whatever Christians say, should never use the term Old Testament. When you use the term Old Testament, you concede the point that there is a New Testament that supersedes our scripture. The correct term for our Bible is, in English, the Hebrew scriptures, or in Hebrew, the acronym, the Tanakh. That is the Hebrew acronym for the whole Hebrew Bible. So in the Torah, for example, there is, as the Hebrews approach the Sea of Reeds, there is this statement that Moses spreads his hands out like this, 
Christian interpreters say that Moses is making the first sign of the cross. So there are a number of things in this, in the Hebrew scriptures, that the church wants to be preserved so as to prove the veracity of the, of the stories of the New Testament. Now, so the church will never buy into the killing of Jews, nor will it buy into, one has to be fair here, for all of the discrimination that the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy place upon the Jews, the church and no pope, I say this unequivocally, there is not a single pope in the entire history of the Roman Catholic Church that has ever supported the folklorish charges that were made against the Jews. When a people are held in contempt, or people is held in contempt, after all, look in our own country. For centuries, African Americans were held in contempt, and a folklore developed about them, that they were mentally inferior, that they were ethically inferior, that they were sexually promiscuous, and so on, that their very sexual organs were different from those of white men and white women. That, of course, is all nonsense. But when a people is held in contempt, a folklore develops about them. In the case of our people in the medieval period, two folklorish ideas developed. They were devastating in their impact. One was the idea that what is known as ritual murder. That is the idea that at the time of Passover, Jews killed Christian boys and girls and used their blood for the baking of the unleavened bread, the matzah. It is nonsense, it never took place, but thousands upon thousands of Jews will die as a consequence of that, and tens of thousands of Jews will probably be expelled from their homes and from their countries. The other folklorish charge was what is known as host desecration. This was the charge that when no one was looking, the rabbis and other Jews snuck into Christian churches, Catholic churches, took out the wafers and stabbed, that is the wafers that are used in communion. And more than one Catholic priest actually testified that he saw the Jews stab the wafer and the wafer bled. That is, the Jews were crucifying Jesus again. It is host desecration. It again is nonsense, but it will lead to the death and the suffering of thousands upon thousands of Jews. The church, the official church, and the popes will never never support these folklorish ideas, and they will actually condemn them. As we move into the modern period, let us say the 19th century, the Roman Catholic Church finds itself under attack, really under attack. That is, in the middle of the 19th century, the attack comes from nationalism and liberalism. The reasons here should be clear. Nationalism said that the nation, the folk, or in Russian, the narod, comes superior to anything. That is, the nation and the nation state should be the principal or receive the principal allegiance of all citizens. By definition, that was a problem for the Roman Catholic Church, which saw Catholics, of course, moving in the direction of the Vatican and, of course, giving their supreme allegiance to the church. In the other idea that was anathema to the Roman Catholic Church was the idea of liberalism. Now, we're not going to rehash what liberalism was. Liberalism evolves over a period of time. Suffice it to say, 
The one thing that a liberal in 2011 says is the same thing that a liberal in 1854 says. That is one of the basic principles of liberalism is the separation between church and state, the idea that no church should have a privileged position, and that the relationship between a man or a woman and God is a private relationship, and the state and the church does not have the right to intervene. The church found itself under attack, and the church digs in in the 19th century. By digging in, I mean the church propounds new doctrines. One of them is what came to be known in the early 1850s as the syllabus of errors, E-R-R-O-R-S. The syllabus of errors was a statement listing those ideologies that no confessing Catholic should adhere to. Liberalism and nationalism were among them. By the end of the 19th century, the church finds itself under even more ferocious attack. This time, it is not only liberalism and nationalism, although that remains a threat, it is socialism and nascent communism. The church is really finding itself in a good deal of difficulty because primarily of the great appeal of socialism. Working class people who had been the bulk of the church's support were now moving to the left and supporting left-wing ideologies. And again, I'm not being condescending here, but please keep in mind what a good Marxist has to say about religion. Religion is the opiate of the masses. It dulls the class consciousness of the proletariat. And Marxism was what is, you know, what would be called a materialistic philosophy. A materialistic philosophy is one that believes that the only thing that is real is matter. If you cannot see it, touch it, hear it, or smell it, it doesn't exist. In other words, for a Marxist, there is no transcendental God. The idea of God is when the molecules of your brain are arranged in one way. The idea of heaven and hell is when they're arranged in another way. Succinctly put, in the eyes of Marxism, religion is a figment of man's or woman's imagination. The church, of course, is going to find that very, very repugnant. The most difficult time in the late 19th century, actually in the second half of the 19th century, between the Jews and the church will occur in the papal state of Bologna. This seems to be a real turning point. This is, this involves the famous Mortara affair or Mortara case. Now please listen to me carefully. I will not get into the great details here. The Mortara family was a middle-class Jewish family in the papal city of Bologna. They had a number of children. One of them was a one-year-old, an infant. The family, because it was a middle-class family, hired a young Catholic girl as a domestic servant. The child, the infant, got very, very sick. The young Catholic girl had become very attached to the infant. She was very much afraid that that young boy would die. So unbeknownst to the parents, she took the boy and had him baptized, believing that this would save his life. Whether it did save his life or not, the boy, in fact, did recover. The infant recovered. Six years later, papal authorities in Bologna hear 
that a Jewish boy has been baptized. The papal authorities send the police, their police, to the Mortara home and they take the boy away from the family. Because Catholic doctrine says that a child who has been baptized is indeed a Catholic. That boy will not see his parents for another 21 years. And when he does see them, he is a Roman Catholic priest. Not only is he a Roman Catholic priest, he is given the mission and is very successful in converting non-Catholics or lapsed Catholics, bringing them back into the Catholic Church and will end his life as a professor in a Catholic university. The Mortara affair is going to make Jews all over the world, including our country, very, very upset and will lead to great tension between Jews and the Roman Catholic Church. It could have been different. There were people in the church and there were many Catholics throughout the world that thought this was a terrible thing. But the Pope at the time, Pius IX, or as he is called in Italian, Pio Nono, Pio Nono adamantly refused to make any concessions to the Mortara family and was insistent that the boy be raised as a Catholic and not be returned to his family. In short, the tensions became very, very great. As we move into the 20th century, the tensions become even greater because of one of those great developments of the 20th century. I am telling you without equivocation, you cannot understand the 20th century unless you understand the rise of communism, the appeal of communism, and the corresponding fear of communism. And again, Marxism-Leninism, as it is now called, is ferociously, vituperatively, opposed to all religion, to all religion whatsoever. And what this is going to mean is that the church finds itself everywhere under attack, even in Italy itself. The Italian working class moves very strongly in the direction of socialism and communism. And the result is going to be a tremendous fear of the church against or of communism. In the eyes of the Roman Catholic Church, the greatest threat to the church is not socialism, is not liberalism, and please keep this in mind because it gets to the heart of what I'm talking to you about, it is not Nazism either. As the church views the world, the primary opponent of the Roman Catholic Church is the Soviet Union and international communism. Enter onto the scene the man who is eventually going to be Pope Pius XII. Pius XII had served in Poland for a time at the end of World War I. I don't know how much history you know, but there is a civil war going on in Poland. And the civil war is between those Poles who have become communists and the overwhelming majority of Poles who find communism terribly obnoxious and fight against it. It is also a time when Lenin sends the Red Army into Poland. Lenin mistakenly believes that the Polish people, the oppressed peasants, will rise as one, join the Red Army, and create a communist Poland. He's got it half right. That is, the peasant population and the overwhelming majority of Poles do in fact rise, 
but they rise to fight communism and they will throw the Red Army out of Poland. This is what is known in Polish history as the miracle of the Wisła or the miracle of the Vistula. It is the last time that a Polish army ever defeated a Russian or a Soviet army. Now, what's going to happen here is, and this we know from his letters, the young Eugene Pacelli, the future Pope Pius, II, Pope Pius XII, is very much concerned about the linkage between Jews and communism. He sees something that is there. He exaggerates it as many people exaggerated it. A disproportionate number of Jews were found in the Communist Party. Again, please listen to me carefully. The overwhelming majority of Jews in Eastern Europe were not communist. I'll say that again. The overwhelming majority of Jews in Eastern Europe were not communist and were in fact anti-communist because of the anti-religious views and the anti-property views of the communist parties everywhere. But among the small communist parties, a disproportionate number of the people in those small communist parties were Jewish. If I haven't lost you, I'll be a little bit clearer. There were 30 million people in Poland, 30 million Poles in the 1930s. Out of 30 million Poles, there were three and a half million Jews. Out of 30 million Poles, there were in the entire country of Poland 50,000 communists. 50,000 communists out of 30 million Poles, but 20,000 of the 50,000 were Jewish. Some of the leading members of the Polish Communist Party were young men and women of Jewish extraction. To push the example even further, Lithuania had a population of 2 million, and out of the 2 million, at the maximum, 180,000 Jews lived in Lithuania. In all of Lithuania, in all of Lithuania, of its 2 million people, there were 5,000 members of the Communist Party. Again, 2,000 to 2,500 of them were men and women of Jewish extraction. The idea that the Jew is a red, the idea that the Jew is a pink, a pinko, the idea that the Jews are communists and betrayers of the fatherland or the motherland or the homeland, whatever language you want to use, was pervasive in Eastern Europe. We believe that the future Pope Pius XII buys into this. He sees a linkage between Jews and communism. He is also a good Roman Catholic. He is steeped in the tradition and the idea that the Jews are Christ killers, the idea that the Jews are a despicable people, is we believe something that he, along with virtually every priest in Italy, really adhered to. In the 1930s, Pope Pius XII was the Secretary of State of the Vatican. He was the one that traveled from country to country. He traveled to Germany. He's very important in dealing in his dealings with the Nazi party. Again, we believe that he is not a racial anti-Semite. Catholicism, like Judaism, does not take a racial view of religion. That is, in our religion, if someone converts, 
from whatever the religion may be to Judaism, that person is considered to be a Jew. In fact, the tradition in our, among our people is so strong that you are, there is a, a rabbinical commandment that if a person is a convert to Judaism, you are never, never to refer to that person as a convert, and you are in fact never to bring up the conversion to that person. A person who converts to Judaism is a Jew. A person who converts to Roman Catholicism is a Roman Catholic. So there's no racial view here about the Jews. He doesn't buy into Nazi ideas that the evil of the Jews is in their blood. But he does buy into the idea that they kill Jesus. He does buy into the idea that they are in fact a dangerous group of people because they flirt with communism and socialism and liberalism. The result is, we believe, he develops an antipathy towards the Jews. Now, with all of that, Pope Pius XI is dead in 1939, and this man, Pacelli, this is the man that is now going to become Pope Pius XII. To use the old language, let's talk tachlis, and let's get to the point before Shavuos. And here the point is this. Here is what he does for the Jews during the Second World War. Please listen again carefully. He sends letters to a number of European rulers who are allied with the Germans and who are very close to the Catholic Church. The only country in German-occupied Europe that was governed by a priest was the puppet German state of Slovakia, which was governed by a priest, Monsignor Tizzo, T-I-S-Z-O. And he sends, that is Pope Pius XII, sends a letter to Monsignor Tizzo in vague terms, very vague terms, calling upon him to seize the persecution of this oppressed people. Whether Jews are mentioned or not, it's not, it's not clear here. The point is, however, that the letter to Monsignor Tizzo comes after 90% of the Slovak Jewish community has been deported and has gone up the chimney in Auschwitz. He also sends a letter to Admiral Horty. Admiral Horty is the man that rules Hungary. Hungary was a German ally until March 19th of 1944. On March 19th of 1944, the Germans carry out Operation Margareta. They turn or transform Hungary from an allied country into an occupied country because German intelligence has picked up the fact, the accurate fact, the true fact, that Admiral Horthy, who is not the tar sharpest tool in the shed, nonetheless understood one thing. Perhaps because one of his sons was killed on the Russian front, perhaps because of what happened at Stalingrad, Horthy believes that Germany will no longer win the war, and he begins to conduct negotiations with the British, the Americans, and the Russians. The Germans cannot tolerate Hungary defecting. That's why the Germans on March 19, 1944, are going to come in to Hungary. This is Operation Margareta. Does the night follow the day? The answer is yes. That is what I mean by that. Not long after a German army occupies a country will come the angel of death. 
the angel of death is Adolf Eichmann, head of Section 4B4 of the Reich Security Main Agency. And what Horthy agrees to is one of the strangest and complex deals of the entire Holocaust. Eichmann wants the Jews of Hungary. Horthy says, I will give you only the rural Jews. I'll give you all of the Jews outside of Budapest, but not the Jews inside of Budapest. So from the middle of April to July 6th of 1944, 436,600 Jews living outside of Budapest are deported to Auschwitz. This is the Holocaust at high tide. There are days in the late spring and early summer of 44 when 20,000 Jews, Hungarian Jews, will be gassed and cremated each day. The Pope will send a letter to Admiral Horthy. Again, now, here is an interesting, I must tell you, an interesting anecdote. The reason we're not clear why, well, we are clear on this, we are, why the Pope sends a letter. Why does he call upon the cessation of deportations? The reason for that is in April of 44, two Jews escaped from Auschwitz. Only four Jews ever escaped from Auschwitz and were successful. These two men escape in April of 44. They go to Bratislava, the capital of Slovakia, and they meet a priest, a papal representative. And what they do is they tell the priest what is happening in Auschwitz, and they actually draw pictures of the gas chambers and the crematoria. They give conclusive evidence. Then in May of 1944, two other Jews escape from Auschwitz. They too go to Bratislava. They too, in fact, meet the same papal representative and they tell the papal representative what is happening to the Hungarian Jews. Until they come out and reveal what they reveal, people know that the Jews of Hungary outside of Budapest are being deported. They don't know where they're being sent and they don't know what's happening to them. These two men break the news. Now I break off and tell you my own personal anecdote. I'm giving a lecture on Auschwitz, on people at the largest conservative synagogue in the world, that's Bethsedek in Toronto. And I'm mentioning the four men who escaped, particularly the two men who escaped in May that brought knowledge of the Hungarian Jews and met with the papal representative. When I am finished, a woman raises her hand in the back and she says, do you know that Mr. Mordovich, who was one of the two men who, is, who escaped in May, is sitting right beside me? It was as if this man had walked right out of a history book. So he, the two, the four men, meet with the papal representative at different times. The papal representative brings this information to the pope and the pope, of course, is going to send that letter. But it is a bit late. 436,000 Jews have already been deported. Although it should also be clear, something should be, this is, this is fair, fair is fair here. On July 6th, Admiral Horthy orders the cessation of all the deportations. Rural Hungary, or Hungary outside of Budapest, has been denuded of Jews. The Jews of Budapest are given a temporary lease on life. So the Pope did intervene. 
Now, the cynics would say the fact that the RAF bombed Budapest in early, in early July may have had a greater impact on than the Pope's letter. Also, President Roosevelt sends a letter to Horthy telling him that the deportations ought to stop. So the Pope makes, sends those letters, and then he does something else. In 1943, in 1943, in the summer and autumn of 43, the Germans transform Italy from an allied country into an occupied enemy country. The reason for that was the chief of staff of the Italian army, Marshal Badoglio, like Horthy somewhat later, understands after the Allies have landed in North Africa and after the Allies have landed at Sicily that Germany will not win the war. He begins secret negotiations with the Germans. The Germans become aware of it. The hundreds of thousands of German soldiers that are in the northern part of Italy race down the Italian boot. And when they take control of Rome and of Naples and of Italy, they begin to round up the Jews. The SS commander in Rome is a man by the name of Herbert Kapler. And Kapler brings orders, the head of the Jewish community in Rome, and tells him to come to me, and he tells them that the Jews are going to be deported. But Kapler adds, this can be averted if you raise a large sum of money. In other words, bribe me and I will not deport the Jews. Kapler is a thug, he's a piece of scum. He's going to deport the Jews because Eichmann has already ordered the deportation of Jews, but he wants to get as much money as he can. The leader of the Jewish community wants to be believing that Kapler will save the Jews if he is paid off, appeals to the Pope for a loan, a loan of gold. The Pope agrees to give the loan. The loan is not necessary because the Jewish community itself raises the money and gives it to Kapla, but to no avail. The Jews of Rome, who have not gone into hiding, are going to be deported. This is what the Pope does, Pope Pius XII. Here is what he does not do. That is, from 1939 to 1945, Pope Pius XII does not utter a single word condemning anti-Semitism, condemning what the Nazis are doing to the Jews, and calling upon, he does not call upon Catholics or anybody to come to the assistance of the Jews. I will say that again. One of the consciences of humanity between 1939 and 1945, and remember, the Pope speaks to the world every Christmas and every Easter. Not once does he utter a word condemning anti-Semitism, what the Nazis are doing to the Jews, or calling upon Christians to come to the defense of Jews. Now, if you're not sleeping, you should ask me the question. What does the Pope know, and when does he know it? And the answer is, the evidence that we have, is that the Pope knows very well what is happening to the Jews. The reason for this, and he knows it early on, is that there are hundreds of Catholic priests acting as chaplains in the German army, and they are reporting back to him and to other Vatican sources 
what in fact is happening to the Jews. So again, what does the Pope know? He knows a great deal. He also is informed, not directly we think, but indirectly, by a member of the SS, believe it or not, who has serious qualms about what is happening to the Jews. I very rarely, although that's not true, because some films are really very, very good, and many people like to take their history through films, there is a magnificent film that deals with the subject that I'm talking about. That film is called Amen. It's a long film, and it's by the very gifted director, Costa Garvis. It is a magnificent film, and it really gets to the heart of the issue. So the Pope knows a good deal about what is happening. The question then arises, would it have made a difference had the Pope spoken out, Pope Pius XII? And the answer is yes. Many people do not know what the Germans are doing to the Jews. The Jews don't know in German-occupied Europe what they are destined for. If the Pope speaks out, the secret is out of the bottle. It's out of the bag. If the Pope speaks out and says that the Nazis are killing Jews, might not more Jews have gone into hiding? Might not there have been more pressure exerted by neutral powers and by the Allied powers upon the Germans, threatening the Germans with punitive, with punishment after the war? In other words, if the Pope speaks out, there is no, let us say, equivocation and there's no ambiguity of what in fact is happening. And if the Pope speaks out and says, as a number of Catholic bishops did say, that is the Pope's record is a disgraceful record. But the record of the church, the broader church, is not that bad. There will be bishops and archbishops that will speak from the altar at the risk of death and imprisonment, calling upon their Catholic parishioners to come to the assistance of the Jews, to hide them, to protect them, to give them food, to give them money. There will be Catholic bishops and archbishops that will do this. But because the Pope doesn't speak out, there will be other bishops and archbishops that will in effect say, if he's not speaking out, I'm not speaking out. The Catholic Church in Hungary, for example, as the Jews are being deported, debate the issue of whether they should speak out. The chief primate of Hungary is on record as saying, if the Vatican isn't speaking out, then why should we speak out? And he does not speak out. So the Pope, had he done certain things, more Jews may have gone into hiding and more Christians may have sheltered Jews. Do not misconstrue what I am saying. There is no power on this earth that could have saved six million Jews. There is nothing that could have saved six million Jews. Given the fact that the Germans had the Jews, given the fact that the Germans were hell-bent on murdering the Jews, no power in this world, not the Pope, not Roosevelt, not Churchill, no power in this planet could have saved six million Jews. But we are not talking about cattle. We are not talking about sheep and goats. We are talking about human beings. 
if the Pope speaks out unequivocally, condemning what the Nazis are doing, calling upon Christians to come to the assistance of Jews, one could argue that tens upon tens of thousands of Jews would have been saved. And then the final question here is, the most difficult question of them all. The most difficult question for historians is not what happened, not how it happened, but why it happened. Why doesn't the Pope speak out? Again, we have no definitive answers here. The reason that we do not have it is that the Vatican has not opened up the archives. In fact, the Vatican agreed to form a special committee composed of Jews and Catholics and non-Catholics and non-Jews to examine the Pope's role in the Holocaust. That committee worked for a number of years, but when the members of the committee asked the Vatican to get into the archives of the period, the Vatican refused and still refuses. The committee voluntarily dissolved itself. So what we have is the testimony of a number of people. What we have are some documents. What we have is the Pope's letters themselves. So here is what I would suggest motivated the Pope in this period of time not to speak out. The first thing to keep in mind is what I mentioned to you before. As the Pope views the world, the major enemy to the Roman Catholic Church is communism. The major bulwark against communism is the Third Reich. The church had no illusions about Hitler. The church had no illusions about him. The church suffered under the Nazis. The church had no illusions whatsoever. But from the church's perspective and from the Pope's perspective, better the Nazis than the communists. Therefore, nothing should be done to weaken the Nazi war effort. That's number one. Number two is, one must remember, the Pope is as much a political leader as he is a religious leader. The Pope worries about what will happen if he speaks out against the Nazis. Will the church retaliate, excuse me, will the Nazis retaliate against the Catholic Church? Will they put Catholics in jeopardy? The Pope also worries about the proper pronunciation, it's a matter of debate, it looks like schism, but it really is schism. The Pope worries that if he speaks out against the Nazis, Hitler will declare a separate German Catholic Church. Now the Pope is the Pope. He's a religious leader too. He doesn't think the way you and I do. I suspect that there isn't a person in this room that worries about what is going to happen to their soul after they die. I suspect that most of you don't worry whether or not you'll burn in hell. But for a pope, a lapsed Catholic burns in hell. That is, if Hitler declares an independent Catholic Church, it means that these are schismatic or schismatic Catholics. They are no longer members of the true Catholic Church. That is what he is worried about. But I will tell you, and as I told the people in the, uh, in the synagogue, in another synagogue, when I spoke about Roosevelt and the Holocaust, and I explained why Roosevelt did not act. Now I'm explaining to you why the Pope did not act, and I'm saying to you what I said to them. Never, never let explication become exoneration. 
Do you understand what I am saying? The Pope made a choice. The Pope made a choice. It doesn't mean that there weren't other choices. In fact, if you were a Catholic, you would know what the real title of the Pope is. The Pope is the Vicar of Christ. He is the representative of Jesus Christ upon this planet. And according to the doctrine of papal infallibility, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, when the Pope speaks from the chair on matters of faith and morals, he is infallible. Is not the murder of innocent men, women, and children a matter of faith and morals? Doesn't he have a responsibility when a terrible evil is being perpetrated? But I will also tell you, because this is a transcendental question, again, one that I raised in another lecture. Last night, I spoke at California State College at Northridge. And we were talking about, I was talking about the Holocaust. And I was talking about people who helped the Jews and people who did not help the Jews. And I made this statement, because I was on a college campus, the same thing would happen in their campus as, happened, as happens in my campus. If you don't like President Obama, you set up a desk and you ask for a petition and you write all sorts of bad things about President Obama. If you don't like, didn't like President Bush, you could do the same thing. If you don't like the college president, you can do the same thing. You don't like your Governor Brown, you can do the same thing. And you know what will happen to you? Nothing. Any jackass can stand up in a student union or a student center and say anything about anybody. To resist evil when there is no price to pay, that's not a difficult thing to do. To resist evil when the price you pay may be your life, the life of your spouse and the life of your children, the expropriation of your property, that's another thing. That's the problem that the Pope confronted. It is my belief that he, as one of the primary consciences of humanity, and as the vicar of Christ, the representative of Jesus Christ upon this planet, in the face of a murder that he knew about, a mass murder of men, women, and children, he should have spoken out. When the war is over, he is still Pope. And again, he is going to disappoint the Jewish people. Representatives of Jewish communities all over the world go to the Pope and ask him, look what has happened. Look what has happened to the Jewish people. What we need from you is an unequivocal condemnation of anti-Semitism. We want the Vatican to condemn anti-Semitism. Just as you've condemned liberalism and nationalism and socialism and communism, we want you to condemn anti-Semitism. Pope Pius XII will refuse to do so. And then there is the very, very sticky problem. Thousands of Jewish children had been saved because they had been placed in monasteries, nunneries, and churches. When the war is over, most of their parents are dead, but some of the relatives are alive, and some Jewish organizations want to recover these children for the Jewish people. For those who were baptized, the Pope will give nothing they are to remain as Catholics. For those who are not baptized, he is very ambiguous as to whether the church should return these young people, and many of them are not returned. In the eyes of the church, however, 
the Pope is a hero. There are Catholic historians who believe, and even a few Jewish historians, but the Jewish historians were writing at an earlier period of time and didn't have the evidence that we have. There are some people who say the Pope did whatever could be done. And some of them go so far as to say there are secret things that the Pope did that cannot be divulged. Well, until the archives are open, we will not know whether there are secret things or not. But he's a hero in the eyes of the church, and this is why the church wants to beatify him, make him a saint. He is the Pope when the communists take over Eastern Europe. And he is a ferocious anti-communist, and he does vis-a-vis -vis communism what he was not willing to do vis-a-vis -vis Nazism. He threatens to excommunicate confessing Catholics who join the Communist Party and become leaders of the Communist Party. Now, why is that significant? Why is, what's the juxtaposition that I've made? Because the fact of the matter is, Hitler was a born Catholic. Many of the leading Nazis were born Catholics. One third of the SS came from Austria, and Austria was a Catholic country. Not once does Pius XII threaten excommunication, threaten censure against those members of the Catholic Church who are high-ranking members of the Nazi party and are responsible for the deaths of large numbers of people. We move now to the second pope, John Paul II, a Polish pope. Some Polish Jews outside, Holocaust survivors, when hearing that John Paul II had become pope, were appalled. Polish anti-Semitism is deep. It is very, very deep. We all know that. And many Jews living outside of Poland, there are very few inside of Poland, believe that a Polish pope would continue the process of anti-Semitism. They were wrong. This pope was different. First of all, he was a brilliant man. Second, he was in Poland during the Second World War. Third, he was in the Polish underground. Fourth, he had contact. He lived in a shtetl. He had contact with Jews. Of him, it could truly be said, some of his best friends were Jewish. He really had contact with Jews, knew what, in fact, they had suffered. And this man is going to turn out to be a gift from heaven to the Jewish people. He is going to do a number of things. Number one, he is actually going to issue a statement condemning Catholic anti-Semitism. Please listen to me again carefully because this is a fine line. He condemns all those Catholics and all those Christians that perpetrated anti-Semitic acts not only in the recent past but over the millennia, over the last 2,000 years. This was a great statement. Some Jews, however, got upset because he did not condemn the church. In reality, the church was the fomenter of anti-Semitism. But no pope is going to condemn the church. To expect that the pope would condemn the church was foolish on our part. We probably got the best statement that any pope is ever going to make.
and that is certainly in our time and in the immediate future, that Christians and Catholics were responsible for terrible things perpetrated against the Jews. Then he proceeded to recognize the state of Israel. He went to the wall. He met with Israeli representatives. Another pope had gone to Israel, Pope Paul VI, and the only, and he traveled throughout Israel, and the only, we were visiting the Christian holy places, and the only reference he ever made was to the authorities in Tel Aviv. He never made mention of the state of Israel. John Paul II makes mention of it. And then he goes even further. He tells the Catholics that the Jews are the elder brothers of the Catholic Church. And most significant of all, John Paul II declares that the covenant between God and the Jewish people has not been broken, has not been abrogated. The Jews are still God's people. That's important. And from the top down, the message will be given to Catholics everywhere that they are to embrace the Jews, that anti-Semitism is anti-Christian, it is an abomination. This, of course, had followed from Pope John XXIII. From the end of the 50s, down through John Paul II, the church began to turn the corner. It eliminated anti-Jewish prayers, and under Pope John XXIII, and of course under Pius, excuse me, Paul VI, it went even further. That is, a statement was made. It is true, said the church, that some Jews were responsible, or not, not responsible, never use the word responsible. Some Jews wanted the death of Jesus. But it is wrong to condemn all the Jews of that time, and it is wrong to condemn the Jews of all times for being responsible for the death of Jesus. In fact, the world was responsible for the death of Jesus. Is this clear? This man is breaking new, or was breaking new ground. And that, for us, he was a gift from heaven. But any discussion of John Paul II would not be complete without his greatest historical achievement. Very, very quickly, here you must be familiar with the chronology. He is elected pope in 1978. In 1979, he travels to his native country, Poland. He is greeted by millions upon millions of people. And when he gets to Poland, this very smart and articulate man in nuanced language tells the Poles, you hang on. Now again, you, this is, these are not his words. They're much more subtle, but every Pole understands him. You hang on. This evil system will not last forever. And your job is that living under this evil system, you remain decent men and women. He's elected pope in 1978. He goes to Poland in 1979. In 1980, an obscure dock worker by the name of Lech Walesa leaps over the fence at the Gdansk shipyards and forms solidarity. In 1989, the Polish government, communist government, is toppled. 
This man, John Paul II, probably did more to bring about the demise of that terrible, evil ideology, communism, than perhaps any man in the post-Second World War period. Once again, for us, he was a gift from heaven. But for those tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people groaning under the communist system, he was also a gift from heaven. Now, we are all, there is no perfect man among us, no perfect woman. There is no perfect pope. He will be treated well by history. He really will be treated well. Again, for us, a magnificent man. For the struggle in the struggle against communism, also a magnificent man. But there was a flaw. There was a deficiency. It is not politically correct to speak of it now, certainly not within the Catholic Church, but even within the Catholic Church, people are beginning to raise the issue. And that is, he was not oblivious to the sexual abuses that were taking place or being perpetrated by members of the Catholic clergy. He is not guilty. There was never any charge against him. The charge against him is he was aware of what was happening. Either he miscalculated and didn't understand how pervasive this was, but what is incontrovertible is he did not move heaven and earth to stop it, which will cause the church a great deal of difficulty. So I end by saying to you, there are no perfect people. One of the men that I discussed, I think will be condemned even within the church. They may make him a saint, but honest Catholics will know that Pope Pius XII was not true to his religious calling. When six million people were being murdered, this man remained silent. This will condemn him, I would say, till the end of time, whether they make him a saint or not. And as far as John Paul II, the flaw is there. The flaw that he did not protect his church from a terrible abuse for which the church is paying a very heavy price. But in the balance of history, this is one great man and most certainly should be honored by the Jewish people. Thank you very much. All right, my friends, are there any questions? Yes. What's your view of the current pope? What's my view of the current pope? The current pope is a good man. The current pope has two problems. In addition to the other problem, they have the problems of sexual abuse and the other problems that, but he has two major problems. One is the Islamicization of Europe. And more than that is the secularization of Europe. Europeans do not go to church. They just don't go. Certainly that's true of Western Europe and Central Europe. The Poles are true sons and daughters of the church. They go to church. Not even in Spain do you find the large numbers of people going to the church. So problem number one is the secularization of Europe. Problem number two is the Islamicization of Europe. That is, the, is the Muslims are gaining greater and greater influence. 
And he has to worry that Christianity in general, and Catholicism in particular, will find themselves, if not in a minority position, will find themselves up against the wall. And then he's got a third problem. It is a problem that every pope in the 20th century has faced, and it is a problem, however, that has become more acute as I am speaking. That is, the Roman Catholic Church has left hostages in the Muslim world. There are millions of Catholics and millions of Christians living in the Muslim world and they are under attack. So any pope has to be concerned with them. That's why when we ask of a, of a pope a strong position in relation to Israel, we're not going to get it. There are 10 million Copts, Egyptian Christians, living in Egypt, and as everyone knows, if you're reading the newspapers or watching the television, listening to the radio, the Copts are under attack. The Pope considers them to be, he considers himself to be their protector. There are probably now less than two million Catholics living in Lebanon. They are certainly under the gun. There are tens of thousands of Christians remaining in Iraq. They are under the gun. So he's got that problem. He has to worry about Islam in Europe. He's got to worry about secularization. And he's got to worry about the Christians living under Muslim control. I think he has behaved well for the most part. By no stretch of the imagination can you call him an anti-Semite. Even though he was in the Hitler Youth, there are some people who say, well, by that definition, he is a Nazi. The fact of the matter is nearly all young German men served in the Hitler Youth. So the point being, he may even have served in an anti-aircraft battalion. I would not put much stock in that. He's a good and decent man facing an almost impossible situation. Yes? Yes, sir. Um, did John Paul II ever address the Friday the Good Friday language about the Jews that did, Benedict then emphasized? All right. Did John Paul II address the Good Friday messages about the Jews? The answer is that had been addressed by John, excuse me, Pope John XXIII and Paul VI, where a number of these things, a number of the hostile references to the Jews were eliminated. The most famous of them is a reference to the perfidious Jews, and that was eliminated. The problem confronting, of, of course, is it's one thing for the Pope, one thing for the Pope to say something. It is another for what he says to filter down to ordinary Catholics and to ordinary priests. In the United States, it is, it is indeed filtered down. Our, our relationship with the Roman Catholic Church in this country is very, very good. We have our problems. The problems, but they're not major problems. He wants to beatify Pope Pius XII. That's a problem for us, given what I have said to you. But in the scheme of things, Catholic teachings about the Jews have really turned the corner. The problem is, in Latin America, in Spain, there are still people, and even in Poland, there are still people who see the Jews as Christ killers. There are still people who see the Jews as enemies. Now, let me give... <laughs> This is what I'm about to tell you very, very quickly applies to, it can apply to many things. Unfortunately, 
it applies to anti-Semitism probably more than anything else. In the 1930s, forgive me for spinning this out, in the 1930s, the greatest scientific and technological feat was that two men flew around the world. Some of you may know this, some of you may remember it. The first around the world flight. Living in Paris, down and out, is one of the great political thinkers of the 20th century, Leon Trotsky, who has been expelled by Stalin. Trotsky listens to this report over the radio, and he writes an article. And it's a very perceptive article. He says how lucky we are to live in the 20th century when there are airplanes and two men can fly around the world. Even more remarkable, he suggests, is I turn a switch on a black box and a man's voice comes out telling me what happened. We are so lucky, he says, to live in the 20th century. And then, because he was not a C student, but an A-plus student, he perceives the anomaly. He sees the juxtaposition. It is remarkable that we live in the 20th century. We have planes and we have radios. It is a Saturday night. Tomorrow morning, in the same century where there are airplanes and radios, millions of people will go into church. They will bite into a wafer thinking they are consuming the body of Christ and they will drink wine thinking they are imbibing his blood. Do you understand what he's saying? That there are some ideas that are so strong that nothing will shake them. And lest you think that I'm being condescending and contemptuous of Catholics, I, I just ask you to look at me in the sense, here I have a PhD. I've gone to some of the finest schools in the United States. I am a professor in a very good school. And on Kol Nidre night, I will go to the synagogue. I will fast from one sundown to another sundown. And I will ask a God that I have not seen to forgive me for my sins. As I suspect many, if not most of you, will do. And many of you are as well educated as I am. Do you understand the point? There are some ideas that are so strong that nothing will shake them. It is the great misfortune of our people that anti-Semitism is one of those ideas. Any other questions, my friends? Yes. Um, with regard to the, uh, the churches um, opposing communism, because it was essentially anti-religion, uh, from what I understand, the uh, Nazi party line, especially I think in the SS, was paganistic, yes. which is also anti-religious. Uh, anti yes. Why, why, the, why the difference? Alright. What he is saying that the Nazis, or at least a branch of the Nazis, were pagans. They wanted to worship Thor. They wanted to worship the pine trees. And more than that, for example, the Nazis decreed that in Catholic schools, the crucifixes had to be taken off the wall in Germany. But when it came down to it, the church was allowed to function in Germany. And Hitler was smart enough to understand, probably because, more history than you ever wanted to know, Hitler grew to political consciousness in Vienna. In Vienna, there was an anti-Semitic mayor 
Carl Luega. Carl Luega was the only mayor in a larger, of a large European city that ran on a platform of anti-Semitism. Luega also knew, he learned, Hitler did from Luega, never take on the Catholic Church. The church would be hemmed in, the church would be restricted. But you, the church is not broken by the church, by, excuse me, by the state. So there is no, there's no, as in the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union burned churches to the ground. The Soviet Union crucified Russian Orthodox priests against church walls. The Soviet Union confiscated the wealth of Russian Orthodox churches. Nothing like that happens. Now what does happen, now here's an anecdote from the Second World War. A Pole will say after the war that he saw something that he thought was absolutely shocking. Now the murder of Jews didn't seem to be shocking to him, but this was shocking. That is, if you've ever been to Poland, you know that it is an intensely religious country, and as you travel in the countryside, you see crucifixes, uh, pictures of Jesus all over the place, in people's lawns, on houses, and so on. This poll says that during the war, he witnessed the following incident. A group of Germans are in a car. They're drunk as hell. And all of a sudden, they stop before one of these crucifixes. The German officer takes out a submachine gun. There's Jesus on the cross. And he takes out a submachine gun and shoots Jesus on the cross, severing the bottom of the, of the body from the top of the body. And then turns to the people, the Germans in the car, and says, we've killed another Jewish bastard. So there are Nazis who are taking that line. But this is a minority, and Hitler knows you do not take on the Catholic Church. And proof, now this is an interesting thing what happens. I suspect, well, you probably weren't there, I wasn't there. But if one is Jewish, I'll bet you your parents and your grandparents, if they thought about the Spanish Civil War, they lined up with the Republic and they opposed Franco. The overwhelming majority of Jews opposed Franco because Franco was a fascist. For the church, Franco is a defender against the communist republic. How many of you have been to Spain? Did you ever get to the Mesquita, that, great, that, that huge, uh, it was a mosque that was turned into a church? If the guide, the guides don't show you this, that's why you should come with me. The guides, the guides don't show you this, but there are, there are places in this church where there are the graves of priests and nuns that were killed by the communists in the Spanish Civil War. This is not to condemn the Republic and to exonerate Franco. If I were there and to this day, the Republic was the, the, Republic was the side to support. But as the church views the Spanish Civil War, and remember, the Spanish Civil War is the Vietnam of the 1930s. People, you define yourself as a liberal or conservative in the 30s by how you feel about the Spanish Civil War. If you support the Republic, you're a liberal. If you support Franco, you're a conservative. As the church views it, it is the Franquistas that are the ones that are defending Spain against communism.
And when American Catholic leaders turned to the leaders of the Jewish community in our country in the 30s and asked them for support against the excesses and the extremes of the Republic, they will get a negative response. For the Jews, Franco is a fascist. He's supported by Hitler and Mussolini. The Republic is defending freedom and liberty. And later on in 39, I can tell you because I've seen the editorials in local Catholic newspapers, Jews in America then go to Catholic leaders asking them to condemn what the Germans are doing to the Jews. And the answer of some Catholic leaders is, why should we help you? When we asked you for help, you turned us a deaf ear. So the answer specifically to your question is you're absolutely right. There were some Nazi fruitcakes that worshipped this and they worshipped that. But Hitler kept the party in line. There would be no attack upon the Catholic Church. Yes. Reverting yes. back to your original answer about the problems of the present moment has. Uh, uh, the problems of? The, 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 the present moment has. What's happening around the world. The other thing in Europe, uh, which I'm not sure many people are aware of, is the fact that if Turkey comes into the European there will then be more Muslims in Europe than there are Christians. Well, he says if Turkey enters the EU, there will be more Muslims in Europe than there are Christians. Now that is correct and incorrect simultaneously. It is correct in the sense that there are limited numbers of, that there are lots of people who we would consider to be Christian, but they were born Christian, but if they're asked, they will tell you I'm an agnostic or an atheist. So if you include, if you include those, then indeed your statement may be correct. But as to whether there will be more Muslims in Europe than there will be, let us say, Christians or people of Christian derivation, that is not altogether clear. But it is, the Pope opposes. The Pope has opposed the movement of Turkey into the EU. In Poland, one would see very attractive posters in which you saw a yellow horse, like a Trojan horse. The Trojan horse represented the Turks, and underneath was, they do not belong in Europe. So there is considerable, there is considerable opposition to bringing Turkey into the EU. But there is no question that we are witnessing to say the Islamicization of Europe is too strong a statement. But the strength of Islam in Europe is growing as I am speaking. I was going to ask you, uh, as, as a student of history, as a student, <coughs> yourself being a student of history, what do you think the future, sorry, the future of anti-Semitism, do you think it will, it will exist? What are some concerns? What are some things to avoid? All right, if I understand the question is, what do I think about the future of anti-Semitism, right? As, as a scholar yourself. As a scholar myself. I used the expression before. Plato used to say, only the dead have seen the last of war. Only dead Jews have seen the last of anti-Semitism. Whether it is in the United States, Canada, or the UK, or France, or anywhere else, there will always be anti-Semitism. 
the question is not whether the question is not whether or not anti-Semitism will exist. It will always exist. The question for us is: Will it exist in a magnitude that will be an obstacle to our integration into a society? Will it will it lead to physical violence? Will it prevent us from enjoying the benefits of the countries in which we are living? The answer has been in our country: No. It has never. It is there. But it is never, it, the only time it was an obstacle was probably in the 1920s and the 1930s. We will never know how many Jewish men, usually Jewish men, were denied entrance into medical school, into law school, because of a Jewish quota. My own school, Union College, had a Jewish quota of 8 to 10 percent from the early 1920s to 1965. So we will never know how many people were hurt by that. But that is aberrational. That is the exception. The problem is Islamic extremism is virulently anti-Jewish. It is virulently anti-Semitic. And the question that one has to ask for our country is, is the Muslim immigrant community different from every other immigrant community? By that I mean every other immigrant community that has come to this country has integrated, has accommodated itself to American society and shed its worst characteristics. Let me give you an example. I'll talk to you about my favorite American politician, Mayor Koch of New York. <laughs> the best of the best. Now here's the scene. It's a Ukrainian day parade down Fifth Avenue. And Mayor Koch is leading the parade. And a snotty reporter, who must have been Jewish, because he would only ask this question, hey, Mr. Mayor, how does it feel leading a Ukrainian day parade? And Koch replies, America's a wonderful country. In the old country, there'd be a pogrom, and they'd be chasing me down the streets. But in America, I'm leading a Ukrainian day parade. So the point here is, is the Muslim immigrant community in our country different from every other immigrant community? Will it continue to harbor the anti-Semitism, the anti-Semitic baggage that it brings with it from the Islamic world? My own feeling is it will not. It'll take time. That is, it, it will accommodate itself to American society. Most of them will. Some of them will not. It will take time for that to happen, and there may be some unfortunate incidents. In Europe, the Islamicization is, not, is moving in a, in a different direction. I hinted at that, and I spoke about that. And that means that in England, in France, in Belgium, in Germany, in other parts, in Scandinavia, in other parts of Europe, where the Muslim community is growing, we may see more and more anti-Semitism. Thank you very much.